Ordeal on the Pacific by Simon Hemmelrich. For four adventurous men, this boat race promised the challenge they craved. And boy, did it deliver. Colin Parker had heard some wild ideas from his friend Fraser Hart, but this was unreal. I want us to enter a four-man rowing race across the Pacific from California to Hawaii, Fraser, a 32-year-old web developer, enthused over a beer. It's 3,862 kilometres and starts in June next year. The men who'd met as teenagers in Tunbridge Wells, southeast England, relished a challenge. Colin had run the London Marathon and climbed the highest peaks in England, Scotland and Wales in 24 hours. Fraser had cycled over New Zealand mountain ranges. It'll be a real adventure, Fraser said. Colin was unconvinced. Neither of them had rowed before. Oh, it's only February. We've got time to train, continued Fraser, tall and charismatic with shaved head and sparkly eyes. 35-year-old journalist Colin was won over. All right, you're on. The two men, along with 11 other teams, would be taking part in the 2014 Great Pacific Race, the first ever. The organisers helped the friends recruit two more team members. Sam Collins, 24, from Cornwall, was an experienced sailor, while James White from South London, a witty, black-bearded 35-year-old, had climbed Indonesian volcanoes and wanted a break from his marketing career. Team Pacific Rowers was born, with Fraser, a natural leader, made skipper. For the next few months, the four men spent hours on rowing machines in the gym, took intensive sea survival and navigation courses, and spent evenings ploughing through paperwork for the race and begging companies for free gear. They also found a 7.3-metre boat to rent, christening the white, missile-shaped vessel Britannia IV. The men's families were dubious, especially Colin's girlfriend Melanie and Sam's girlfriend Chloe, while Fraser's mother thought he was a bit mad but they could see how much the challenge meant to the quartet, particularly after they'd decided to use social media during their voyage to raise awareness about plastic pollution in the Pacific. In May last year, the four men arrived in Monterey, California, for the start of the race. They still had a huge amount to do, buying dried and powdered food and struggling with their internet-driven communications systems. With a week to go, the organisers insisted on a thorough check of all the boats, Britannia 4's inspection couldn't have been done by a more appropriate person, British boat builder Justin Atkin, who'd actually created the craft 13 years earlier. Atkin spent an age checking every nook and cranny of Britannia 4 before walking over to Team Pacific rowers with a grim expression. This has been worked on by people who don't understand ocean-going rowing boats, he announced. I believe in its current state the boat isn't fit to take part in the race. Sam, Fraser, James and Colin were crestfallen as they looked at the list of repairs that Atkin wanted. Much of the boat's fibreglass floor and a glass cabin hatch needed replacing. They'd poured more than £10,000 each into the race already. If it costs more than another £10,000, we can't go on, said Colin. Luckily, a local boat builder agreed to cut a good deal if they helped with repairs. So they spent a week chiselling away fibreglass and filling any small holes with sealant until the race inspection team were happy. Polished and ready to go, Britannia 4 looked magnificent. The men had missed the official start of the race, but five of the other teams were also delayed. So on June 18, they set off. In the half-light of an eerily flat early morning sea, it suddenly hit James. We're going to be alone on the ocean for weeks. What are we doing? 
Still, as they headed out past Monterey's upmarket waterfront and distant mountains, it became clear that their training had paid off. Rowing in two-man, two-hour shifts along a well-planned southwesterly route, they'd made great progress by the end of their first day. Well done, guys, you've covered more miles than anyone else, race organiser Chris Martin told them over the radio. By late that evening, though, an unexpectedly strong northwest wind had picked up, with waves thumping the rowers' faces. Fraser and his colleagues spent an uncomfortable night of half-sleep between shifts on isolated rolling seas. I can't pretend this is easy, thought boyish blonde Sam, struggling to get comfortable in the cramped aft cabin. Still, they kept focused and were soon more than 95 kilometres from land, far away from or on a different course than the other five boats. On the afternoon of the following day, however, when Fraser flicked on their desalinator to make drinking water, all he heard was weird grinding. Sam opened the compartment and found it flooded with seawater. He bailed it out and got it running. Two hours later, it had flooded again. Fraser opened all six compartments. All were full of water. Great, he said, in an uncharacteristically quiet voice. Despite their repairs and checking, the waves had exposed previously unseen weak points in the seals and water was rushing from one section to the next. The men spent the afternoon frantically bailing with buckets and an electric pump, in between strenuous rowing shifts as four-metre waves smashed over the deck. By evening they needed rest, so they threw out a para-anchor, a device that keeps boats more stable in storm conditions, and squeezed into the fore-and-aft cabins for the night. At first light, Fraser stretched out his hand to find about eight centimetres of water pooled behind his head. The boat was riding so low that every time they got some water out, a wave washed in again. This is impossible, said an increasingly desperate James. One hatch we can bail out, but not all this. He and Fraser concentrated on trying to seal the internal holes. But not much later, suddenly Fraser announced, that's the last of the putty. They were powerless to stop the flooding now. We're going to have to radio the support yacht and ask for more, said Sam. They had no idea how long it would take the yacht to reach them and whether they'd still be afloat by then, but the men now looked at each other with disappointment as much as fear. If we get help, said Colin, we're disqualified from the race. We've overcome so many obstacles in the last year, thought a crushed Fraser, and now this. But there was no option, so Sam radioed Chris Martin. The support vessel, Gallon Diana, had been towing other struggling teams closer to the Californian coast. He told Sam, it won't get to you until at least 6pm. That was 10 hours away. As the hours ticked by, the wind got stronger and the four men sat clinging to their partially submerged craft. It was 8pm before James spotted a mast approaching. 50-year-old experienced skipper Rod Mayer and his crew of three battled the waves to keep the gallon Diana circling close to the rowing boat before radioing to tell the men they'd have to abandon their boat and swim across to the yacht on a buoyant safety line. But as he tried to keep his eyes on Britannia 4 amid the churning waves, Mayer realised his 50-foot vessel was rising and crashing so violently that it could smash down on the men as they tried to reach for its swim platform. As Mayer deliberated what to do, the deepening seawater on board Britannia 4 blew the boat's electrics, plunging it into darkness and halting the pump. Just to let you know, Sam radioed over, this is getting ridiculous. Captain Mayer communicated with race organiser Chris Martin and he called the Coast Guard. 
Petty Officer Chris Leon, a 26-year-old helicopter rescue swimmer, had just returned to his San Francisco base when the call came in around 10pm. He and his helicopter crew piled on board and set off, but Britannia 4 was 110 kilometres off Monterey, 95 kilometres to the south, so they'd have to fly there first and refuel. Back on the boat, which was starting to list alarmingly, Sam was getting cold. The others had put on their survival suits, but Sam's had become tangled and so much water had gotten in that he couldn't get it on. The water was a cool 12.8 degrees Celsius. He was now shivering violently. James tried to keep him warm, but soon the numbing, frigid sensations in Sam's body turned to a strange euphoria. He wondered if he was on the edge of hypothermia. I'm screwed, he thought. Where is that helicopter, James shouted, raising his fist to the sky. The Gale and Diana's crew had been giving the men rough updates on the chopper's progress via the VHF radio. But suddenly their radio fell silent, the battery dead. How long now? The men were reduced to shouting across the roaring sea. At about midnight, a red light appeared in the distance. There it is, shouted Fraser. The helicopter hovered about 100 metres from the rowing boat, then moved away. Oh God, thought James, maybe it's too windy for them. He wasn't far wrong. Chris Leon had plucked people from stricken boats before, but never in 4.5 metre waves on an overcast night so far from land. Pilot Scott Black came over the radio. We've only got enough fuel to stay for 30 minutes. There was no time to waste. Chris, in a bright orange survival suit, opened the helicopter hatch. The boat was about 20 metres away, but after hoist operator Craig Spreggins had lowered him clear, Chris released his harness and jumped nine metres into the sea. Behind him, Craig lowered a metal rescue basket, barely big enough for two men, into the water. Chris swam for Britannia 4. Everyone said Sam should go first, so Chris told the young Cornish man to jump in the water. Dazed and disorientated, Sam brought a heavy bag with him and sank like a stone. Chris searched desperately for him, then dragged him to the rescue basket, waves smashing over their heads. As Sam was slowly hoisted into the helicopter, Chris realised the boat had drifted almost 400 metres in the strong current. There was no way he could keep swimming back and forth to the basket, and he had to be hoisted back into the helicopter too. Then suddenly Craig yelled to Chris, We only have enough fuel for one more hoist. Drop me first and then the basket right onto the boat, he yelled back to Craig. Both knew that this would be dangerous. Unable to see directly beneath him, Pilot Scott had to rely on Craig's commands to guide the basket. Forward a bit. Three metres to the left. Back on the boat, Chris told the remaining rowers there was only enough fuel for this last pickup. Chris and a volunteer would have to stay on the craft until the chopper could return. I'm skipper, I'll do it, said Fraser instantly. The descending basket swung straight for James's head, but he ducked. Chris caught it and James and Colin squeezed inside. On board the helicopter... They high-fived a blanket-covered Sam, but their thoughts were with Fraser. Clinging onto Britannia 4, waist-deep in water on a boat that could capsize or sink at any moment, Chris asked Fraser, Have you got a life raft? Yep, said Fraser confidently. But in their panic to bail out the boat, the rowers had failed to tie up the raft, and just at that moment it floated away. Chris radioed the helicopter for a replacement. It too was grabbed by the sea. That was our last resort, thought Chris. We're exposed. Both men fell quiet. Though there was little it could do, 
the gallon Diana stayed close by. Fraser and Chris strained to hear its crews shouted updates on the helicopter's progress. Chris was losing feeling in his hands. He worried about being unable to operate the hoist hook. If that helicopter doesn't come back soon, we could be in serious trouble. Meanwhile, Sam, James and Colin had been taken to San Luis Obispo County Regional Airport and given warm clothes. They waited for news. At about 3am, Chris Martin called. It's about Fraser, he said solemnly. Sam feared the worst. The race organiser continued. He's been rescued and taken to Monterey. Back at the base, Chris's colleagues congratulated him for brave work in gnarly conditions, as they put it. It was a big risk, particularly being left there, says Chris, but it's worth the reward. My motivation and training is to help people. The four rowers were full of praise for their rescuers. You guys rock, James wrote on Facebook to Craig and Chris. I have a serious man crush on Chris, says Sam. We're lucky there are such amazing people in the world. Only seven of 12 boats finished the Great Pacific Race. The winner, Uniting Nations, reached Hawaii in just under 45 days. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia.